Welcome to the Westpac Market Outlook podcast. My name's Bill Evans. I'm the Chief Economist of the Westpac Group. And today I have Justin Smirk, Matt Hassan, Andrew Hanlon and Elliot Clark uh, to talk about various aspects of the Out Market Outlook publication that was released on Friday. Let me first start by talking about the overall picture for interest rates and economic growth. So at the last Market Outlook uh, presentation in April, we talked about a likely rate hike from the Reserve Bank of 15 basis points in June, but a lot has changed since then. The, the big change was the release of the March quarter Consumer Price Index. So when we reviewed our Consumer Price Index forecast, we expected that it would be such a shock to the Reserve Bank that they would see the need to raise rates by 40 basis points in June rather than the original 2015 that we talked about before. And the reason for that was that we thought that the Reserve Bank was thinking that the CPI would print 3% underlying for the year to March 2022. Um, we had been expecting 3.4% um, and we thought that was going to be a big enough shock to make them feel that they needed to do more tightening than just the 15 basis points in June. But what happened was that it printed 3.7%, so significantly above our worst fears and miles above where, the reserve, where we think the Reserve Bank was expecting the number. As a result, we thought they had really no choice but to raise rates at the May board meeting. Now, of course, that came as a big shock to them only a week before in the April board minutes. So we're talking about waiting until June to see the wages numbers. But I think that number was just too large for them to ignore it and defer it for another month. And of course, we did see that um, interest rate rise being delivered. But they delivered 25 basis points rather than the 15 that we and the market expected. And I think the reason for that was that they wanted to send a very strong signal that they were concerned about the inflation and they wanted to do what they called business as usual, which was to move in increments of 25 basis points. The story about the, uh, the reasons why that move occurred is that if you think about where they were seeing inflation only um, back in February when we had the last set of their forecasts, the assumption then was that inflation, underlying inflation would reach two and three quarter percent uh, by the end of 2022 and stay at two, three quarter percent through the course of 2023. So within the two to three percent band. And yet to yet last Friday, when we saw the new set of, of inflation forecasts, they're now predicting that inflation will be four and three quarter percent at the end of 2022. And they have a challenge to get inflation back to within the three, two to 3% band. Their forecast is that they'll be able to get it back to three and a quarter percent by the end of 2023 and at 3% by the middle of 2024. So a huge change, not only in the forecast for inflation, but also in the extent of the challenge that they have on their hands. And we think that for that reason, when they decide on their next move in June, uh, it will be a better policy to actually have another large increase of 40 basis points. 
Better to do the large moves early on in the cycle so that you know that you're not overreaching because there are, is huge uncertainty around the current environment. Think about some of the uncertainty. In the last few weeks, last month or so, we've seen risks around the supply side increase, both through the invasion of Ukraine and in the COVID shutdowns in China. And we've seen strong demand. So that collision between strong demand and supply shocks is still well and truly impacting upon the inflation story. Reserve Bank has also determined from its discussions with business that businesses are now much more comfortable with raising prices. They've been under such pressure on their costs that they feel that now is the time that they have to that they have to raise prices, and we'll start to see that showing in the numbers even further, as Justin will discuss later on. And then, of course, the Reserve Bank is now much more concerned about wages growth. Um, they had been following, expecting the wage price index to be the key measure of wages growth, but that's a slow-moving beast. And we expect that the Reserve Bank is now saying, well, we'll look at we'll look at the wage price index, but we're also looking at what we're hearing from businesses. And 40% of their businesses in their in their liaisons are telling them that wages are rising by 3% or more. So the urgency around the wages has become more significant. And also think about the the extent of the Reserve Bank's instruments policies. They can only really weigh on demand. And if the supply shocks are being extended and not slowing the way they're expecting, then the damage they need to do to demand becomes even greater. So that creates a high degree of uncertainty uh, going into 2023. The governor also surprised us by giving us some guidelines as to what interest rate forecasts were behind their, for their, their uh, inflation and growth forecasts. Those forecasts are that the uh, cash rate will reach one between one and a half and one and three quarter percent by the end of this year and two and a half percent by the end of next year. That contrasts with market pricing of two and three quarter percent by the end of this year and three and a half percent by the end of 2023. And to throw one final opinion into the mix, our own view is that the cash rate will get to one and three quarter percent by the end of this year and two and a quarter percent by the middle of next year, and that should be enough given the high degree of sensitivity that the Australian household sector and household balance sheets have to higher rates. That still implies a much higher debt servicing ratio than we've seen at the peak of previous interest rate hikes. And one of the factors there is that there is the household balance sheet is in very good shape. The savings rate for the household sector has averaged around 17% uh, it for the last two years. That's equated with about $250 billion of excess savings. The Reserve Bank reports that redraw facilities have lifted by over $100 billion in the last two years, 3.5% of disposable income, compared to normal increases of around 1% of disposable income. So the household balance sheet is in good shape and therefore should be resilient in the early stages to these higher rates. But eventually we expect 
that high debt servicing ratio and falling house prices are going to pay a, a major toll and get the Reserve Bank to achieve their inflation objectives by the end of next year. Matthew Hassan will talk more about our views on house prices later in the discussion. In market outlook, we also revised down our growth forecasts for 2022 and 2023. And the major factor there has been the higher cost of living. That just means that when spending is released as the savings rate falls over the course of 2022, it's coming into 2022 at over 13%. We expect by the end of the year, the savings rate will be down to 6%. So every quarter, the household sector saves less, which provides more cash for spending. But if the cost of spending is much higher as a result of the higher cost of living, then less real growth can be achieved. So we've actually lowered consumer spending in 2022 from 8% to 6.2%, which has meant a reduction in GDP growth from 5.5% to 4.5%. And in 2023, some of that momentum of higher cost of living will impact spending as well, not to the same degree because we weren't expecting the same degree of strength of consumer spending, but we have growth coming down from 2.7% down to 2.5%. So a whole degree of uncertainties at the moment with regard to the extent of the supply shocks, the strength of the household balance sheet and the sensitivity of the interest rate hikes, um, the sensitivity to the interest rate hikes of the um, of of uh, of the household balance sheet and the labour market, but we've got more to more to say about that. And indeed, I'd like to hand it over now to Justin Smirk. Justin Westpac and the RBA have similar inflation mm. profiles. Where do you see the risk to inflation? And what are the key factors we need to watch out for in the next year or so? Thanks, Bill. It's actually the, the very interesting question. So I've tried to split this one up into sort of like three areas. Um, one of them is just looking at where the similarities to the basis of our forecasts. Um, so we have this very, very similar profile for underlying inflation out to the end of the horizon. We're both ending around 3%. So that tells us that at this point in time, we seem to have a similar momentum there. But what's different and what starts to show some of the risks is where we're different in the headline inflation. We have headline inflation dipping down below 3% at the end, whereas the IBA still has it at the top. And that is really given for two key reasons, um, and that's our view on oil prices and the currency. We have oil prices strengthening through the near term, upside risks, but then as we go through 23, weakening down into the $80 a barrel, whereas the IBA has got it flat around just above $100 a barrel. So they have a stronger headline inflation that. We also have the Aussie dollar strengthening to $0.80 cents through 23, and that's providing a disinflationary pulse. So straight away, you can see two areas where there's key risks around our forecast for both headline. And if you think about the next couple of steps I'm talking about, it also produces risks for underlying. And that is through the energy price shocks and, of course, um, what happens with the currency. The next step, you also raise to these ongoing shocks around um, external environment, around um, supply shocks, and also around the whole costs of freight and, and disruptions that we're seeing in this global, global trade speculation. Um, Continuously, we're seeing those shocks continue to be applied and stresses in the systems continue to appear. Both us and the RBA are forecasting some decline in improvement in those conditions over time. 
but clearly, at least for the near term, they remain elevated. And also, there's a clear risk we're not going to get anywhere back to the levels we had before the shock. Normally, we in these environments, we get return, we, the prices shoot up high and then return back to levels closer to where they were before, producing a disinflationary pulse to offset the inflationary pulse. Clearly, this time, we're getting a much lower one. So the external environment remains quite a significant risk for the inflation profile. And then the final one is we were talking before about wages and how that works for the system. And you're looking at all the cost pressures that we're seeing here at the moment. At the moment, they're coming through um, dwellings and the cost of building dwellings. Underlying costs of construction and all the inputs is rising faster than, as fast as we're seeing the dwelling prices rise in the CPI before the grants were being applied. You're seeing it broadening through um, clothing, footwear, and you're seeing it through um, a lot of um, the um, non-discretionary items at the moment are being applied. And, of course, that means as... Uh, you talked about with growth and seeing higher prices coming through, consumption being softer, that applies on the discretionary and non-discretionary rather than the discretionary rather than non-discretionary items. And so you see those pulses risks there. And then finally, how you will wind it in through wages and, and inflationary expectations. Now we are seeing the first claims for the minimum wage coming through now. Um, the unions are asking for five percent. Uh, the uh, retailers are the first um, business group to respond, and they're countering with an offer for 3.7, saying wages shouldn't be growing faster than um, what the underlying rate of inflation is doing. And if you're thinking about what's going to happen out of this, if the unions are asking for five, businesses are asking something close to four, somewhere in the four is the most likely sort of outcome we're going to see. Now, four on its own, when you've got inflation, when the RBA and ourselves are talking about underlying inflation rising to four and three quarters odd percent, is not really a big issue for the, the way for the inflation outlook. With underlying productivity growth, that means real wages are not a contribution to inflation. But the part of the biggest story is, is in, in this such tight labour market what we're experiencing now, there's a significant undersupply of labour, and without seeing large surge in um, migrant flows in, we're going to continue to have a tight labour market. We're pushing up against um, the boundaries when it comes to how far can we push. Um, the, um, the underlying um, supply of labour, so that's, that's, that's your underlying sort of rising, what we're seeing in rising um, female participation and even some stabilisation of male participation. Those suggesting that we are going to see ongoing wage processes in particular areas and that then feeds into this whole sort of rising inflation expectations which you are seeing in the surveys, leading to businesses lifting prices more and being more, having seen the more ability to do it and you've got this whole sort of off-feeding ongoing process. So you can see within the, in the forecast horizon, I was really quite surprised to see just how aggressive the RBA moved their inflation forecasts to be slightly higher than ours when you look at them. Very close overall, but slightly higher than ours, suggesting they've seen upside risks. We pushed our inflation forecast quite a bit, looking for those other risks. And I actually see that the, the asymmetricness in the, in the risk profile right now. It's very, very easy to build in risks where you can get higher levels of inflation and more sustained inflation and it's very much more difficult to build scenarios where you get lower rates of inflation or a deflationary shock. We can see here now that the risks are really building in one way, and that's something that the RBA obviously is very conscious of and something that we're going to have to be conscious of too. And it really comes back to that nexus of this really tight labour market and how it starts feeding into expectations, not just about wages per se in their own right, but how overall inflation expectations build and how that then builds into the whole pricing structure, which then feeds back into wages again. Thanks a lot, Justin.
So really what you're saying is that the uh, transmission mechanism from the higher interest rates is not going to work through the labour market. It's going to really have to work through the household balance sheet and the housing market. So I've asked Matt uh, to, to point out that we've refreshed our house price forecasts, given, given that outlook for rates. How are you seeing the housing market, given that outlook, Ra, Matt? Well, yeah, for the, uh, the most interest rate sensitive sector of the Australian economy, it uh, really just goes one way. The, the brought forward uh, front-loaded uh, interest rate tightening cycle uh, is set to bring forward the expected correction in house prices and accentuate it slightly. Um, the tightening is coming much earlier in the piece. Uh, we originally were expecting August, now it's uh, begun in May. Um, that's very likely marked the end of the boom. Uh, and we'll move into correction phase starting a little bit earlier around the middle of the year. Um, just recall that you know, the main mechanism here is around reduced borrowing capacity uh, that uh, as interest rates rise, uh, owner-occupied buyers in particular uh, will be more constrained in terms of their ability to meet the market around demand. Uh, and there's already signs that we're starting to move into a correction phase, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, prices have slipped slightly already over the first few months of the year. Uh, and turnovers come off pretty sharply, about 20 or just over 20% uh, for the year. From a very high starting point, uh, we had booming conditions into year end, but that's a, a very abrupt uh, slowdown. Again, sort of consistent with uh, the, the shift in views we've seen around uh, buyer sentiment uh, and growing expectations uh, of imminent rate rise. Uh, the, we're seeing some of these signs also from uh, auction markets. The, the latest weekly auction results, so the first. Uh, post-RBA rate hike uh, week uh, shows clear, preliminary clearance rates in the Sydney market dropping below 60%. That's roughly the, the gain line uh, for clearance rates for positive or negative price growth. Um, and the detail is pretty weak as well. Uh, we saw one in four auctions withdrawn prior, uh, which is a, a, a pretty clear indication that, that sellers don't expect to get decent turnout for events uh, and that it's a, it's a weakening market. Um, as I said, this is primarily about owner-occupiers, uh, and so we, we do expect the correction phase uh, to move uh, more or less in lockstep with the interest rate tightening. Uh, the uh, tight labour market means that we, we're not unlikely to see a, a more disorderly price correction. So, for example, if we were to see uh, a, a recessionary environment where you had a sharp rise in unemployment, uh, that could lead to uh, a wave of more distressed sellers coming onto a very weak market. We don't see that combination coming through over the next year or two. It'll uh, more be about uh, the, uh, the steady move higher in interest rates, curbing borrowing capacity in the owner-occupier space. Uh, but as I said, it, it's pulled things uh, ahead earlier. We still expect uh, uh, roughly the same sort of peak to trough correction of about 14% for prices nationally. Uh, it's coming from a lower peak because the, the corrections come through faster and we think it's going to be more compressed. So if we look at the, the calendar years, uh, previously, we expected uh, prices to be up about 2.5% nationally uh, for the full 2022 year, um, given that we would have some momentum in the first half. Uh, now we expect them to be down 2%, so the, the correction coming through earlier. For 2023, previously we expected prices to move 7% lower through that year. Now it's looking a little bit more accentuated, about 8%. Uh, but I guess the, the silver lining here is that uh, with a, a front-loaded tightening cycle, uh, it, it's going to be over quickly. You know, we're expecting rates to, to reach their peak about this time next year at about two and a quarter. Previously, we'd expected a, a, a continued rise through to early 2024. So at least we have some prospect of stabilisation 
starting to merge over, over the course of 2024, but uh, it's, it's still going to be against the backdrop of, of elevated rates compared to where we are now. So uh, a challenging few years for the housing market, a clear correction phase looms that's coming through earlier. It's likely to be a bit steeper to begin with, uh, but not the, the disorderly sort of uh, you know, rush of, of supply uh, adding to disorderly price corrections, hopefully. Back to you, Bill. Thanks, Matt. Um, Andrew Hanlon, uh, we've talked a lot about the sensitivity of the household balance sheet to the interest rate hikes, uh, how we're expecting to see the employment story hold up really well. But what about the other part of the economy, business investment? How do you see the investment outlook, particularly in the light of these negatives of higher inflation and rising interest rates? Yeah, hi, Bill. Hello, everyone. Uh, so certainly a good question. Uh, how are we seeing the outlook uh, for business investment in light of higher inflation and rising interest rates? I think the short answer, of course, is that we will see, likely see some negative spillover effects. But on balance, the outlook is certainly still positive, uh, particularly in the near term. Um, so when we think about uh, the outlook in general, what we're expecting, of course, is that uh, higher inflation and rising interest rates will temper, but not derail the reopening, lifting consumer spending. And so from the business perspective, uh, that increase in spending is supportive of uh, business investment uptrend. And that's in the context of uh, limited spare capacity, generous tax incentives, as well as strong corporate balance sheets. So what we can expect to see is that firms need to increase investment in equipment spending and software in order to expand their productive capacity and also to respond to that scarcity of labour um, and those rising wages costs. So they need to be lifting investment to respond to the fact that we have a very different situation in the labour market prior to the uh, pandemic. The situation there was ample labour and so there was a really less incentive to invest. Now it's flipped on its head very much about limited uh, labour supply, higher labour costs, and of course you need to uh, boost productivity by investing more. In terms of the business mood, it's still quite a positive one, so a very different picture to consumer spending. So what businesses are responding to is that uh, business conditions are still strengthening. Consumers, despite sentiment coming off, are still spending. And that lift in underlying demand will certainly be supportive uh, of the need to invest. If we turn, say, to the construction side there, certainly some positives there as well. Uh, we know that uh, commercial building approvals recovered in 2021. They, they, they lifted by 17%. That more than reversed or reversed that 13% decline we saw at the outset of the pandemic in 2020. So it's created a sizable pipeline of work and that's going to boost uh, activity on the construction front this year. I, I guess the one question mark that we're all grappling with is, is those capacity constraints, those shortages of materials and labour, which you know will hold back the desired or hold back activity um, from where they'd like it to be. So, so that is a potential headwind in terms of actual business construction on the ground. Um, in terms of our forecast for business investment, uh, we're looking for an increase of 8% this year and 4.5% in 2023 as the economy slows down and cools. And we have tempered those forecasts. So uh, for 2022, we, we've lowered the forecast from 9.2% to 8 And the main change has really been around equipment spending. Uh, we, we've, we've cut that back from 35 to 11%. And just to finish up, one last point is that 
just as there's um, a need for a catch-up or pent-up demand around consumer spending, it's also true for businesses. Uh, we did see the Delta lockdowns impacting over the second half of last year. Uh, business investment actually dipped in Q3 and Q4 despite some positive fundamentals and in part it's due to those Delta disruptions. So, of course, we'll see a catch-up in the first half of this year. So the outlook is positive, but there will be some negative spillover effects and we have tempered our forecast for business investment. Let me leave it there. Thanks a lot, Andrew. <clears throat> Once again, emphasising how important this interest rate sensitivity of the household sector is going to be if the Reserve Bank is going to make their inflation targets. Uh, Elliot Clark, a lot been happening in the US, uh, particularly with the Federal Reserve raising rates by 50 basis points, um, loss of volatility in the markets. I'm leaving it really open to you as to for you to choose what you actually want to talk about in, uh, in your limited time, given that we could probably talk all day about the various implications behind the Fed, implications for the US dollar, for the US equity market, et cetera. But what area did you want to talk about today, Elliot, uh, with regard to the um, US developments? Thanks, Bill. Yeah, as you said, there's been a lot going on and a lot of different ways in which this conversation can go. I think in these kind of uncertain times, it's quite often helpful to um, sort of think about sort of aggregate indicators. And one of those is really quite giving you quite a clear story at the moment um, with a number of sort of fundamentals driving it is what's happening with the US dollar. So to give a sense of the scale of the moves we've seen over the last month between our April and May market outlook publications, we've seen a 4% appreciation in the US dollar. That's on a DXY basis, which is effectively considering the US dollar against euro, sterling, uh, yen, the uh, Swiss franc, um, Canadian, Canada's dollar as well. And what you see there sort of behind that is a, is a number of factors, one of which is about relative growth for the US versus particularly Europe and the UK. Uh, secondly, uh, about what we're seeing in terms of, of interest rate differentials between those those key nations. And thirdly, there's kind of more of a broader kind of a risk-off uh, sort of trade. So safe havens flows running into the US dollar, um, really waiting to see what will happen and therefore where they should reallocate thereafter. Um, so we just take each of these in turns. I think it, it really gives a good sense as to kind of what's been going on and and also then what's likely to transpire in the next kind of six to 12 months. And we start with uh, looking at kind of what's been happening in terms of relative growth prospects. Now, we did actually see a contraction in, in US GDP in the March quarter, but really that was just a, a statistical situation around inventories and trade. Domestic demand was still well above trend. You contrast that to what's happening with Europe and the UK, and it's a fundamentally different situation. Um, so their growth is still technically positive in, in the first quarter, but we've seen clear guidance that yeah, effectively these economies are stalling, and stalling for quite a protracted period. For Europe, uh, the euro area, we effectively likely see uh, stalled growth, also no growth, um, throughout the rest of this year, um, and potentially really struggling to recover next year, depending on how developments go between Russia and Ukraine and the implications of energy prices. With regards to the UK, um, it's probably more that the, the forecasts of the Bank of England are quite telling. Uh, they came out last week and forecast 10% inflation growth at the end of this year uh, and then no growth effectively next year in terms of GDP. 
So effectively a stagnation kind of situation, uh, which is obviously quite alarming and was alarming for the markets. Uh, but that, that comparison then between US growth and, and Euro and UK growth uh, has really been a very big support for, for the US dollar over the last month and is likely to be for the next kind of quarter or two as well. Um, you can also add in there Japan as well, although it's probably more applicable on, on the rate side. So whereas we've had um, you know, the Bank of, uh, Bank of England raising by 25 basis points, we've had the ECB in Europe uh, not wanting to move and, and really probably pushing towards saying you know, rate hikes are going to be further out than, than is currently anticipated by the markets. Uh, and you've also had, as I mentioned there, the Bank of Japan effectively doing the reverse of what the Fed's been doing uh, and saying that they're not going to raise rates and they're not going to stop uh, quantitative easing. So a very strong, a striking contrast between uh, the US and Japan. Uh, and all of that is leading to you know, a, a very significant um, support for the US dollar as well. Um, you know, we mentioned earlier that the Fed raised by 50 basis points uh, at their, their May meeting. That's not a one-off. We're expecting them to do that again in June and July, and that was really a message that was provided by Chair Powell. And so the more you get those confirmation of those outcomes um, until you get the situation where inflation dissipates, uh, then there's going to be that, that confidence for the market uh, that's going to be supporting the US dollar. Um, the, the reality, however, is that um, these, these kind of factors for the US dollar are going to impact uh, the economy and therefore are going to slow it and we're going to get a reversal at some stage. And that's a question of when. Uh, so one of the kind of key tenets of, of our, our forecast has been that, yes, we we recognise that the Fed is going to act aggressively to start with. So said, two more 50 basis point moves in June and July. Thereafter, we have them slowing to 25 basis points, uh, taking us up to 2.625% at the end of the year. Uh, so much more measured pace. Equally, that is the peak we see uh, rather than the, the about 3% figures that the, the market's looking at. Um, and really, that's recognising that we see the, the tightening of financial conditions been, being brought about by the FOMC, uh, with you know, seeing the 10-year the, the rise above 3%, um, the mortgage rate rise over 200 basis points since December. Uh, that's all going to be impacting the economy through this year, and we'll see growth below trend next year. And so that's the first kind of point to note, that as we look through the back end of this year, when people are thinking about what's happening in 2023, and therefore pricing that into FX, they're going to be looking to a, an economy that's increasingly likely to be slowing and to be below trend, and that's a negative for the US dollar. Um, equally, we think about kind of that kind of just the, the rates view, that when we get out there, we are going to be seeing the Euro ECB raise rates the and the Bank of England, while sort of stable, they're going to be getting improving uh, relative growth prospects. So both of those factors should really then yeah, support those respective currencies against the US dollar and, and really see DXY fall away. Um, the other sort of major point just to note is that as we move through this year, we should see not only the risks related to the Russia-Ukraine situation, but also China's COVID zero policy and just the broader uncertainty that we're seeing in global markets at the moment dissipate. And as we do, there's less reason to have those safe haven flows into the US dollar. And so, again, we see that, that sort of reversal of that trend uh, and people seeking to take risk around the world and focus on where the growth is strongest, which is places like Asia, as an example. And that will therefore actually reverse that, that trend and, and provide a quite a different narrative to, for the market to play for. And so... At the end of the day, we're not sort of talking about the, the US has said stalling or going to recession as what is potentially the risk for the euro area and for the UK. Um, but it, it does really sort of tell you that we are going to see this shifting um, sort of, I guess, picture, which will then really be informing what happens with the US dollar. 
And I suppose, you know, at, at the end of the day, that's also you know, worth emphasizing. That's one of the sort of the key supports as to why we see the you know, Australian dollar rising through the back end of this year and next year as well is on that sort of much more positive backdrop for, for the global economy um, and that, that deceleration we're expecting to see in the U.S. economy and therefore that downtrend we're expecting in the U.S. dollar. Thanks, Elliot, and thanks to the other speakers. So as you can see, uh, a huge degree of uncertainty at the moment. Um, we've got some fairly clear views with regard to that. Uh, and we hope we've been of help with you today. And thank you very much.